All right, pray with me. Father God, thank you so much that we can celebrate your love. We can celebrate your greatness, your justice, your mercy. We can celebrate uh, the life that you give us through Jesus Christ. And Father, now as we listen to your word, thank you that we can celebrate truth. uh, Not just for truth's sake, but for the fact that you are the God of truth. You teach us uh, who you really are. And I pray that you would would help us to... uh, to remember that and to live in light of who you are. So teach us now for your word as we open it together in Christ's name. Amen. Good morning. Hey, open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 28 today. We're going to hit the highlights of not one, not two, but three chapters. Now that is three for the price of one. Amen? Amen. Yeah, you got to enjoy that. Okay, so pray for me that I can stay on track and help us knock out this great set of stories. Genesis chapter 28. You know, our series is entitled, very intentionally, God of Our Fathers. And I know the the big word there is fathers. But the fact of the matter is, the focus is not on the fathers. That is, the fathers of the faith, the founders of the faith. You know, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph is yet to come. But yet, it's the God of our fathers. What we're in the midst of is a study of the person of God. Now, I want to ask you, how important is that? For some people, they just think, well, that's just kind of for theologians. But listen to J.I. Packer in a little book that I bought years ago, and to this day, I think it's the best book on the subject. Uh, In fact, uh, I got this uh, the year I got married, I believe, 1974. It was published 1973, and it's still the best book, in my opinion, on the study of God. J.I. Packer writes this. Concerning the study of the character of God, some believe it to be unpractical and irrelevant for real life. And then he says this, In fact, however, it is the most practical project anyone can engage in. Knowing about God is crucially important for the living of our lives. As it would be cruel to take a tribesman out of the Amazon jungles and fly him to London and put him down without explanation in Trafalgar Square. Imagine that. And leave him there as one who knew nothing of English, nothing of England, to fend for himself and try to survive, so we are cruel to ourselves if we try to live in this world without knowing about the God whose world it is and who runs it. The world becomes a strange, mad, painful place and life in it a disappointing, unpleasant business for those who do not know about God, disregard the study of God, and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life, blindfold, as it were, with no sense of direction, no understanding of what surrounds you. This way you can waste your life and you can lose your soul. I think that's a great statement you've never read knowing god i highly highly recommend it it's still out today in this passage we're going to be delving further into what we learn about god so that we learn how to live in relationship with him it's like trying to understand a husband or a wife or or a friend for that matter and you don't really understand them you you think you can you know them and all of a sudden you say oh i I realized later i didn't know them at all have you ever said that you know, I thought I knew that person, and all of a sudden their behavior causes you to say, you know, I didn't know them at all. And all of a sudden you, you, your trust 
or faith in that person will go down the tubes if you don't feel that you understand who they are, how they behave, how they think. And that's why the study of God is so central to life. We've been studying the God of the fathers, and what we're finding is a common theme. I'll click it off real quick. Here we go. Abraham, what did we learn? Chosen by God. God chose Abraham. Why? Because God chose him. He chose Abraham to be the father of a great nation, to be blessed by God, that he might be able to put God on display to the world and bless eventually every family on planet Earth. We know the end of that story. That's through the birth of the nation of Israel and the birth of the Messiah for mankind. Abraham is chosen by God. He believes, but yet he still struggles. He still sins. He still struggles to trust God on a daily level. And then we learned about his son Isaac, who's chosen again by God. Not Ishmael, but Isaac. God chooses Isaac to be the, the bearer of this, of this great uh, promise and covenant. He's chosen, he believes, but yet he struggles with unbelief. He gives birth to a couple boys. He and his wife have Jacob and Esau, right? Remember that? We learned that last week. We're going to continue with Jacob's story today. But the bottom line is, God chose Jacob, the younger of the two, instead of Esau. Now, normally in the culture, you don't do that. But guess what we're learning about God? God doesn't play by other people's rules. In other words, God can choose who he wants, why he wants, and he has a mysterious way of doing that. He chooses Jacob, not Esau. And today we're going to learn Jacob has been chosen by God, but Jacob, back up one, Jacob has been chosen by God, but Jacob is still struggling with unbelief. He's struggling to really trust God, to protect him and provide for him all that he needs for life. And we pick up the story there. It begins in chapter 28. And in chapter 28, what's going to come down? Here it is on the screen. It's Jacob's story begins with this. Hey man, go get a good wife because you're going to build a great nation. You are the chosen one. God is going to fulfill his promises through you, Jacob. But the problem is, Jacob, what, remember what Jacob means, his name in Hebrew? Means deceiver or schemer. So he's a deceiver by nature, and we saw that you know, he comes out of the womb, and he's, he's already a deceiver. We find that he kind of manipulates his, uh, his, his older brother into giving up his birthright last week, and, and then he has to, has to trick his, his dad, Isaac, whose eyesight is going bad as he's aging, and he pulls this uh, shenanigans and deceives his own father in order to get the birthright, and, and, you know, and that really ticks off. Esau, and we find last week, as we closed with this, Esau said, you know something? I'm going to murder my brother. So he knows his brother's out to get him. His brother's out to kill him. His mom, who loves him deeply, says, Jacob, you got to leave. You got to leave town until your brother cools down. And in chapter 28, we see the orders given. Pick it up, and we follow with me in the, in the word. By the way, if you're not in the habit of using the handout, you're going to need it today. You will never keep up with me, I guarantee you. So use this as a tool if you want to. It'll help you, and you can track it a little quicker. Here we go. Chapter, chapter 28. He says this. Chapter 28, verse 1 says, So Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said to him, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. In other words, the region they were living in the other tribes of people that don't believe in the true God, don't believe, you know, they, they, had, they had all kinds of evil practices. 
He says, you know, you're not going to marry like your brother Esau did. Remember in last week's passages, it says this about Esau. He married two Hittite women. And these were women who followed other gods and, and had all kinds of strange practices. And, and it even says that, that, the, that the wives of Esau were driving the parents crazy. That's the translation from the Hebrew. Okay, and, and, and so, so he says, don't make that mistake. You've got to marry someone from our family clan that believes in our God. And you need to get out of town anyway because your brother's going to kill you. So they tell him, he says, arise and go to Panam Araram to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and from there take for yourself a wife from the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. So Laban, uh, his mother's brother, lives in Haran. Now, if you remember where Haran is, it's a long ways off. It's outside of the promised land of Canaan. It's outside of God's promised land for the people. Um, if you remember when Abraham, Abraham started uh, in, the, uh, in, in the southern end near what we would call modern-day Babylon. Picture that on the map. And, and, and when Abraham was told by God, get up and leave your land, leave your people, I'm going to give you a land, you're going to be the father of a great nation. Abraham, to get there, traveled north, and he traveled north a long distance to Haran in the far north, and then... Finally, God reaffirmed his covenant to him. Genesis chapter 12, he said, hey, I want to give you, uh, you'll be the father of a great nation. Through you, I'm going to bless the whole world. He leaves Haran and he travels southwesterly. You see my map right here? Okay, it's on the screen. It's not on the screen. It's right here. Okay, I got a virtual map. So he travels up to Haran. He leaves Haran, travels a great distance down to the land of Canaan, a land that was possessed by other people, but God had promised to give it to them. It's what we now call the promised land or the land of Israel. But now he says, go back up to Haran. Check in with my brother and marry one of his daughters. Now this is not exactly the way we do courtship today, but in that day and age, this was how it was done. So he heads off in obedience and he doesn't travel very far, and we come to the first story that kind of caught my attention as I try to highlight the, um, literally, the highlights of this passage. He stops off, and he gets a good night's sleep in an area um, where he lays down to sleep that is only a few miles north of modern-day Jerusalem. Can you picture that? So he's still in the Holy Land. He's still in the Promised Land. And he, and he, and he goes to bed, verse 10. Pick it up. 28.10, then Jacob departed from Beersheba, further south. He went north toward Haran, but, he came, but he's only gone a short distance. He came to a certain place and spent the night there because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of that place and put it under his head, and he lay down in that place, and he had a dream. And behold, a ladder was set on the earth with the top reaching to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending upon it. And behold, the Lord stood above it. And he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, the God of Isaac. Okay, in other words, your grandfather Abraham. When they say, by the way, the God of your father, the word father in Hebrew means your ancestor. So it doesn't just mean one generation. Okay, they'll use that. Same thing when it says, so and so is the son of somebody. They could, he could be the 
grandfather, the great-grandfather, uh, or the dad, and they'll use the same phrase when they say that we are uh, the son of someone. It means the descendant of. It says, I am that God. I'm the God of Abraham. I'm the God of Isaac. And the land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your descendants. Your, your descendants will be like the dust of the earth. They will spread out to the west, to the east, to the north, to the south. And in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. See, it's just that the same promise he gave to Abraham, same promise he reaffirmed to Isaac, he now gives it directly to Jacob as the leader, as the one that's inheriting this covenant promise with God. Then he says in verse 15, Behold, I am with you. I will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and he said, Surely the Lord is in this place. I didn't even know it. He was afraid and he said, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. By the way, in a few minutes, he'll name this place Bethel, which means house of God in Hebrew. So he rose up, he took the stone, he anointed the stone with oil in a, in a, in a worship event. He sets it up as a memorial to what had happened that day. And then he says this to God. And Jacob made a vow to God saying, God, if God, if God will be with me and will keep me on my journey and that I take and will give me food to eat and garments to wear, and I return to my father's house in safety. In other words, if I come back someday alive and well, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone which I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that God gives to me, I will surely give a tenth back to him, which was a traditional gesture of worship. Still is today. But it began way back then, long before the Old Testament law even. Abraham did this too. See, what's going on here? What's, what's the significance of this? Why does God do the dream of a ladder in which He lets Him see angels ascending and descending up and down the ladder, obviously illustrating that, you know, guess what? God is alive. He's in control in the heavens his angels are coming and going. They're involved in life on planet Earth. God is alive and well and active is what he's symbolizing. And, and, and he reaffirms the promise, covenant, directly to Jacob. Why does he do this? Well, it's because Abraham, his grandfather, knew it and believed it. Isaac, his father, knew it and believed it. Jacob knew it, but I don't think he believed it yet. He hadn't had a personal encounter with God. And by the way, this is not the way God normally communicates with people. Okay, so don't, don't read this story and think, okay, God, uh, can I have a ladder tonight, please? I mean, I kind of want to see the angels going up and down, and I want to hear your voice. If you study the Word of God from beginning to end, there's, you could count on both hands the number of times in which God directly speaks to people in miraculous ways. I'm not saying that God can't do that. Obviously, God can. The story proves that He can. I just don't want you to get mixed up and think, okay, so this shows me what I should expect God to do tonight when I fall asleep. You know, God has given us His Word. This is why this book, this book didn't exist during the time of this story. This is why God records all this, is so that we have the Word of God that we can hear clearly 
read it, study it, obey it, and follow it. So just, just a little tidbit for your spiritual life. Don't expect ladders. Don't expect burning bushes. Don't expect some of this stuff that you see in Scripture. It's the exception, not the norm. But back to the story now. See, what God is doing is this. This is a significant deal. I mean, Jacob is about to go up to Haran. God knows what's going to happen. God knows he's going to meet a beautiful woman he's going to fall in love with. God knows that he's going to uh, be successful and become prosperous. God knows that he's going to have the girl of his dreams living in a land where nobody's fussing and fighting with him, and his brother that wants to kill him is a long ways away. Now, if you had all that happen to you, what do you do? How quick are you to come back home? Slowly. Slowly. Maybe never. So God knows that, you know something? It's time for Jacob to understand. You have been chosen by me to do something great, to birth a nation, and it's going to be through you. And it's going to be in this land, not up in Haran. So go to Haran, get a good wife, but then come home. And I'm going to promise you, I'm going to fulfill my promises to you. So this is a huge event in Jacob's life. And we're going to see that it works. Number two, Jacob then moves on in chapter 29 to what I call his second dream. Jacob wakes up, he travels on up to Haran. Would have taken several days to get there. And then we pick the story back up in chapter 29. Let's pick it back up in verse 1. It says, And Jacob went on his journey... And he came to the land of the sons of the east, because he's traveling northeasterly, okay? And he looked and he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep were lying there beside it. For from that well they water their flock. Now the stone on the mouth of the well was large. When the flocks were gathered there, they would then roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep. So the, this big stone protected the well from getting polluted and getting used by other critters and animals. And they left the stone in place until all of the shepherds brought their sheep and then they watered them. And then they put the stone back in place by the mouth of the well. So Jacob asked these shepherds, Hey, my brothers, uh, where are you from? Now you got to remember, Jacob's GPS is broke. Right? In fact, it doesn't exist. Okay, So Jacob is going to a city he's never been to. And all he knows is he has the general direction. And he thinks he's getting close. So he asks these shepherds, hey, where are you from? And they go, we're from Haran. So he says, hey, wow, my uncle's from Haran. You know, do you know my uncle Laban? They go, oh, yeah, we know Laban. In fact... That woman coming with a flock of sheep, that's his daughter, Rachel. Wow, okay. And by the way, we learned something later. You might as well know right now. This passage says Rachel was beautiful in both form and face, which is a real polite way of saying, wow. Okay, wow. I mean, she's got the whole package. She's beautiful in her face. She's beautiful in her form. And she knows how to take care of the sheep. She's a shepherdess. She is good at what she does. She's taking care of her dad's flock. And she's bringing them to water. Now, Jacob, you got to remember, he's been told by his parents, go up and marry one of the daughters of Laban. And he says, wow, how good is God? 
I don't know, you know, I'm, she, day one in the area of Heron, and my beautiful, this, my future wife just showed up, and wow, she'll take care of my sheep, I can sleep in every day, and she's beautiful. I mean, guys, wouldn't you go, wouldn't you go for that, right? Okay. While he was speaking, so she comes up. And uh, while he was speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep. Verse 9, she was a shepherdess. When Jacob saw the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob went up and rolled the stone from the mouth of the well and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. In other words, Jacob does what any smart guy does. Beautiful woman, Coming with the flock, let me help you with the stone. He mans up, flexes a little bit. Okay. Is my flexing not bringing up images of Jacob? Okay, anyway, flexes a little bit, moves the stone, and welcomes Rachel in with the flock. Let me take care of your sheep, since we're family, right? You know, and then he says he, he kissed her. Check this out. This is like R-rated. Jacob told Rachel... You know, Verse 11, then Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted his voice and wept. So now this stranger is, is, all of a sudden kisses her and starts crying. And, and she's probably thinking, this guy is a nut, right? But, you know, what kind of nut is this? But, but here's what's going on. It's not like he gave her one of those big uh, R-rated kisses. No, instead, this is a way of greeting so she runs to her father, not like, Dad, this guy's molesting me. No, 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 don't get on hand. It's not this. You know, it's, it's the appropriate family greeting. Because then it says, by the way, Jacob comes, I mean, I mean Laban, excuse me, Laban comes to, to, uh, to welcome his nephew. So Laban comes to welcome his family member, and it says he embraced him and kissed him. Uh, so this is the family greeting that's going on at this point. The other kissing happens later, but it's coming. Then Laban said to Jacob, verse 15, oh, it says, uh, verse, verse 13, so when Laban heard the news of Jacob's sister's son, he ran and met him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. And then he related to Laban all the things that had happened. And Laban said to him, surely you are my bone and my flesh Surely you really are my relative. You've got to remember there's no Instagram, there's no Facebook page to check, right? So, you know, he, he, he hears enough of information about his mom and what's been going on that he says, yeah, that's my sister you're talking about. And Laban says, surely you are my bone and my flesh, your family, and he stayed with him for a month. So he stays with him and works for a month. So I call it Jacob's second dream. First dream, ladders, angels, up and down. Second dream, woman of my dreams. And he knows he wants to marry Rachel. So finally, the story kind of gets interesting when in verse 15, Laban says this to Jacob. Jacob, because you are my relative, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall be your wages? In other words, I don't want, I'm taking advantage of you. You know, you've been working a month for me, and, I, and you're not even asking for any pay. All you want to do is help Rachel go into the fields with the sheep, okay? So he's getting to know Rachel. But the, the reality is, um, Laban says, what do you want? And then he has a little side note. By the way, quote, verse 16, Laban had two daughters. 
The older one was Leah, and the younger one was Rachel. Now Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful of form and face. Now Jacob loved Rachel. So he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, well, it's better that I give her to you than to some other man. So stay with me. Let's, that's a deal. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of his love for her. Now that's a great lie. Okay. Seven years to get the right to marry this woman? But it says, you know something? Man, the time just flew by because of his love for her. This guy's got it bad. He's deeply in love with Rachel. He serves seven years as a dowry to earn the right to marry her. But he's okay with that. Wow. <clears throat> Pretty cool. But you notice what he said. The older daughter Leah, all it says was her eyes were weak. Now, that's, it's a strange word, this word weak. But when you study it in Hebrew, this week I read every time that it shows up in Scripture, sometimes uh, some of your translations may translate it, her eyes were tender. It sounds like a compliment, right? Bad translation. The majority of the times, this word means weak or defective or bad. So in some sense, she had weak eyes. And in some sense, Laban knew that because of her weak eyes, nobody in the village wanted to marry her. So my guess is she either had severe eyesight problems, that's most likely. So everyone knew that she really, maybe that's why she's not taking the sheep out like uh, Rachel out in the fields, you know, because she can't really see that well. And, I mean, who wants to marry a wife that can't do all the work and take care of you? Right, guys? Right, guys? Yeah, I mean, you're just a gutless group this morning. You will not. Sure, we'd all love that, you know. Who wants the wife that's going to be a, a, you know, a, dis, a disability and she's, I'm going to have to take care of her. She can't take care of me because I guarantee you, in the Middle Eastern world, it was the women that did most of the work. So Laban thinks, how am I ever going to get rid of this older daughter? So he strikes the deal. And uh, things turn nasty. It goes from Jacob's deal, which is I'm willing to give seven years for Rachel, to what I call Jacob's ordeal. His ordeal begins in chapter 29, verse 21, when he says, And Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, for my time is completed. My seven years are up that I may go into her. They would consummate the marriage uh, sexually as they had their wedding night for the first time. And it was a big part of the ceremony of consummating a marriage. So Laban gathered all the men of the place, verse 22, and he made a big feast. So you got to picture this party. Every guy is invited. All the men would gather not sure exactly where the women were at this point. Not sh exactly sure where Rachel was at this point. But in some sense, he kept Rachel in the dark. He either sent her away, uh, maybe get some more wine for the party. I'm not sure. Maybe he had her locked away. I don't know. But we see what this uh, scoundrel does. I'll just tell you the story for sake of time. But basically, he throws a big party. Probably part of the deal is that he gets... Uh, his future son-in-law, he, he, he gets him a little bit tipsy at least. Uh, there was always kind of the tradition of the wedding tent. And they, 
and Jacob goes into the wedding tent and he waits for his bride to be sent in. And the bride comes in and it says that he sent in Leah instead of Rachel. He sends in Leah veiled. Dark tent, drunken husband, veiled wife. Next thing you know, the story goes on, Jacob wakes up in the morning. He wakes up in the morning after sleeping with Leah, thinking he's sleeping with Rachel. And he wakes up in the morning, and he goes to Laban and he says, what the heck have you done? That's my translation from the Hebrew. It says, it is not, you know, it says, what have you done? Verse, uh, verse 25, what is this you have done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served you for seven years? Why then have you deceived me? And interesting, see the twist on this? The guy that spent his life deceiving his brother, deceiving his father, the deceiver gets deceived. You know, there's a little principle here that what goes around comes around, right? What you sow, you will reap. And now Jacob is the victim of deception by his father-in-law Laban. But Laban says, well, it's not our practice to marry off the younger before the firstborn. I'm just following our cultural traditions. And uh, too bad for you. Now, he says, therefore, he says, complete the week with this one. In other words, the wedding week. And we will give you the other, Rachel, also for your service of another seven years. So now, oh man, you got to be Jacob. Jacob thinks, I'm going to go spend a few days till my brother cools off, find a good wife, come home. He works seven years for the woman that he loves. He gets tricked by his father-in-law. He says, you know, I love Rachel enough, I'll do it. He works seven more years, okay, after the wedding week, he marries Rachel and Leah. Now he has two wives. He has two wives, two sisters, both become his wife. Picture that, okay? Now, he works seven more years. He's worked 14 years in order to have the privilege of marrying the dream of his life. Jacob's ordeal, Laban's, what I call, sister swap goes down. And Laban now has both of his daughters married off as a result of his trickery. Now, the story goes on, and I don't have time to go into details on the rest of chapter 29 and 30, but here's what I call it. It's, I call it Jacob's blessings. Because out of all of this deception, out of all of this um, trickery uh, of Jacob and, and Laban and the, and the women. and uh, Out of all of this, here's, here's the deal. God begins to birth a nation. It doesn't mean that God approves of the sins of Laban or the deceptions earlier of Jacob for that matter, but God has a plan to use even, even their sins to bring about good. And what He does is he begins to give birth to a nation. And they begin to say, who's going to have the first baby? I love verse 31. Check this. Now the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, and he opened her womb, and Rachel was left barren. It's just amazing that God, again, God is sovereign. You can say, why did he do this? God saw, you know something? Leah is a victim here. She didn't do anything wrong, except went along with her dad's trickery maybe. 
But you know, she's the one that was born with weak eyes. She's the one that nobody wanted to marry. And she's the one that knows that her husband doesn't really love her like he loves her beautiful sister. So God says, you know something, Jacob? Leah's the one that's going to give you your first child. And Leah's womb is opened and she begins to have not one, not two, not three, but the first four children are Leah's children. Now, if you're Rachel and you're watching this go down over the next few years, what are you starting to think, huh? Rachel's starting to think, uh, I thought I'm supposed to be the, the, the chosen, loved, beloved wife. And so Rachel comes up. In fact, I'll give you a little list. You know, if you go to the end of the story here, the 12 tribes of Israel, Leah ends up having six of the children. Bilhah, Rachel's maid. Rachel says, since I can't have a child... Take my maid and marry her, and she'll be wife number three, and she can bear children for me. And it works. Bilhah has two children. Well, Leah's not going to be outdone. So Leah says, hey, guess what? I got a maid too, Jacob. You can have my maid for wife number four. And, and, and Leah's maid, Zilpah, has two more children. Okay. And then finally, Rachel is blessed by God, verse 22. Verse 22 of chapter 30. Then God remembered Rachel, and God gave heed to her and opened her womb, and she conceived and bore a son. And she has her son that she names Joseph. See, now, later on in the stories to come, when all the brothers are fighting with each other, which brother is the brother that is loved the most by his mommy and daddy? Joseph. You see why? Because Rachel went all those years, couldn't have a child. Everyone else is popping babies left and right, and her womb is barren, and she can't have a child. And finally, she has Joseph, her child. And Now, he's the the little special number 11 out of 12, by the way. Who's the final one, you know? Yeah, it's not till chapter 35, so we're not going to look at it today. But finally, Rachel has one more child. She asks for one more child. She bears Benjamin. Benjamin, Joseph's younger brother, and she dies in childbirth. It's a tragic story. And uh, now Benjamin is the final 12th son to Jacob. So what do we learn from this? You know, final score, Leah 6, Bilhah 2, Zilpah 2, and Rachel 2, and she dies, giving birth to the second one. You know, there's love, there's tragedy. It's a movie. Someone should do this. The book is better. The book is better. What do we learn about God in this story? I summarize it with two words. God is always on the move, accomplishing His purposes. God is always on the move, fulfilling His promises, His purposes. And God is downright mysterious. God is mysterious. Um, as I walk you through some highlights of this to wrap us up today, here's some takeaways from it. Um, first of all, let me talk about the elephant in the room or in the story. In other words, the thing you, you probably have never heard a sermon on, and that is, why is polygamy so common in this part of the Old Testament? And is it okay? Does this endorse polygamy? And by the way, if this story doesn't scare you from the idea of having four wives then you need to wake up, okay? Uh, here, the, the deal on polygamy is this. 
polygamy was a commonly practiced, uh, was commonly practiced in the cultures of pretty much all the cultures of the day. Um, it was never endorsed in Scripture. It's never endorsed by God. But in a very mysterious way, God does permit it, but He never approves of it. He permits it. He never endorses it. He never promotes it in Scripture anywhere. And in fact, what you find in Scripture is every single time a man decides to have more than one wife, he gets in trouble. And so do the wives. So it's by nature of that, Scripture is not a big fan of polygamy. What does Scripture teach? Scripture teaches Genesis chapter 2, verse 24 and 25, which says that God's design from the very creation of mankind was for one man and one woman to make a covenant commitment for life and in that commitment to raise a family and to be blessed by God. God's design is one man and one woman. That's God's design in Scripture. We find later, by the way, the Jews finally wake up and they quit practicing this. We know they're not practicing it at the time of Christ and and we know that in the New Testament it's never endorsed. Uh, but Jesus constantly, when talking about marriage, always looks back to, do you not know that when man and woman were created that God said, boom, boom, boom. So Jesus always points back to Genesis 2, uh, 24 and 25, as God's pattern. That's his design. But what else do we learn apart from do not marry your sister-in-law? Amen? Yeah. Or her maid. Amen. What else we learn is this. Three quick points. God's ways are beyond us. Expect the mysterious. I think sometimes we as Christians settle into thinking we've got God all figured out. And when it comes to living real life in the real world, if there's one thing this passage teaches me is expect the unexpected. Because God's ways are often mysterious. And we don't understand why. Why did God do it this way? Why didn't God just have Rachel, the dream, you know, the, you know the, the keeper of the sheep, and they fall in love, and they get married, and, and he maybe works for seven years for her. That's kind of a cool part of the story. And then they run off to the Holy Land, and they have 12 sons. You know, why not? Well, you know, but, but the reality is you mix in real people in real time doing wacky things, and what God does is God says, I have a plan and a purpose to build a great nation through you, Jacob, and nothing's going to stop me. Not one wife, two wives, two wives, four wives. One way or the other, I'm going to get my mission accomplished. And God works through it, uh, works through these imperfect people with all of their jealousy and all kinds of stuff and, uh, to accomplish His purpose. God's ways are beyond us. Romans 11 has become one of my favorite theological verses. If you uh, t- turn, turn your Bibles to Romans 11, or at least note the reference. Read it this week. Romans 11 says this. It says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are God's judgments. How unfathomable His ways. In other words, God is, God's ways are not easily understood. And you know, this is written right after, earlier in Romans 11, where it talks about, do you not know that God chose Jacob instead of Esau? And what's that to you? It's God's choice. 
you know, it's actually talking and referring back to this very story. You know, so the reality is God expects some mystery. I think a lot of Christians get really rattled in their faith whenever God doesn't do things the way we think He should do them. Expect some mystery. Expect to be surprised. Um, I I made this statement in the first service. God is predictably, let me say this again, God is predictably unpredictable. God is predict, I can't even say it, predictably, say it with me, God is predictably unpredictable. Because he's bigger and smarter than us. Number two, God's plans are bigger than us. They are always global and eternal in scope. We know we see, we think it's all about me and God. In reality, God says, Dale, I love you. I proved it by dying for your sins. I proved it by giving my son as a sacrifice for you, Dale. I love you. I love you. I love you. But my plans are bigger than Dale. They're bigger than you, and you, and you, and you. My, I've got a global, eternal thing going on, and you get to be part of it, but I've got a bigger plan that involves way more people globally and eternally than just you. And, and, and we know that because in this very story, you can see how God is setting up what's going to happen later with Joseph. We'll come back to that in a few weeks, but you can see now why All of a sudden, Rachel never has a baby. Why? Because God wanted her firstborn, Joseph, to be so special that all the other brothers would be envious and jealous. They're going to sell him into slavery and send him to Egypt so that when the whole clan is about to starve and they need to go to Egypt, guess what? God has planted Joseph there to rescue them. See, now, now we don't get into that this morning, but you see what I'm saying when I say God thinks global, God thinks eternal, and we, he says, trust me that I still love you. And that's the third point in the story, is that God's grace and his love is inexhaustible. He loves us and he uses us in spite of our sin. He's loving us and using us. He wants to use you and love you and care for you, but also use you to advance his mission in mysterious ways that you'll never understand. And he says, now, when the pain comes, trust me. Because I love you with an inexhaustible amount of grace and love. I mean, God worked through all these scoundrels in the story to birth a nation. Because these 12 sons will later become the 12 tribes of Israel, the nation through which we get our Messiah, the nation through which God will bless the entire world, including you and me. But it all happens with four wacky women trying to have babies with one confused man. But yet God pulls it off. See, God is mysterious. Can you trust a God that you cannot, at times, understand? I hope so. He earned it on the cross. Pray with me. Father God, thank you for the incredible, incredible gift of your love, your wisdom. The wisdom to understand that you are so much bigger than us, smarter than us. Your plans are global and eternal in nature, and you are always doing things that we don't see. 
Thank you that your angels are coming and going and that you are at the head of the ladder giving them orders. And thank you that you let us be a part of the story in spite of our own sin. Thank you for your unconditional grace. Thank you for your love that is inexhaustible. And we submit to you and we choose to say, Lord, let us be part of your plan. Use us as you wish. In Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me? We're going to close in a little different way today with uh, just close with a prayer as we go out to actually live following a God who is mysterious. You've got to be comfortable with a little bit of mystery. You've got to be comfortable with it because we don't want to bring God down to our level. Amen? Yeah. Father God, thank you for a great day of worship, time in your word, as we go forth to be your people, uh, to be sons of Abraham, to be children of the faith, uh, to be the followers of our Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, may you use us. But Father, whenever we're confused because you're doing something that we don't understand in ways that we don't quite get or agree with, um, for purposes that are beyond us, Help us to know that because of the cross, we can say, we trust you. You earned it. Thank you for the gift of your son, and may we be followers of his, by his strength and power in Christ's name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Hey, thank you so much as you go today. Before you leave the room, would you uh, find someone you don't know and just welcome them to Seacoast? And I'll see you out in the, out in the plaza, okay? Thanks. <laughs>